everyone. This is Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine, and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Alan Wilsig. Alan is an automotive and motorcycle enthusiast who has been a semi-professional race car driver and race team owner. He owns Wilsig Racing Manor, the largest private racetrack in the U.S. that's located in upstate New York. Alan has amassed an impressive collection of race cars, sports cars, and motorcycles. His collection of more than 100 motorcycles includes many Bimotas, Ducatis, and KTMs. He was also an early investor in Bramo Electric Motorcycles. Retired from a career in banking, Alan is active in many charitable and philanthropic endeavors. He serves on the boards of the Wilsig Hospital and the Wilsig Family Foundation and provides financial support for the Rainforest Alliance, JCP Downtown, High and Mighty, Cars for Cause, and many other organizations. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Right on. You're a diehard gearhead. You've, uh, I know you've been a professional race car driver. Uh, you've been a race team owner. Uh, you own uh, Wilsig Racing Manor, Manor, which is the largest private racetrack in the U.S., and you own an impressive collection of cars and motorcycles. Um, I think Cycle World once dubbed your collection the uh, Garage Mahal. You're also a philanthropist and an all-around interesting guy. So let's start at the beginning. Um, which came first, your love of cars or motorcycles? First of all, thank you for that introduction. I, I thank Cycle World as well. Um, I would say no one's ever asked me that question, actually. <laughs> um, boy, I'd say they, they, they both came at the same time and both came um, at, a, at a really early age. It's strange. My... Um, you know, most people or many that grow up as, as gearheads, as you say, and as I'm uh, happy to, to, you know, self-label as well, that um, it comes from a, a, an uncle, a father, an older brother. And, and my older brother, who's 10 years my senior, um, had a minimal influence in terms of, of, uh, of sports car stuff. I remember he had his first car was a, a black and gold uh, uh, Datsun 280Z, the special 10-year anniversary sure. edition that came. You remember black and gold and a couple in black and red. Yeah. And um, and so as a as a 12-year-old, he was uh, 22, and and uh, and so that got me interested. He was my uh, always my idol as a kid, as was my dad. And um, but 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 at home. It was it was a, a, a strange thing. We um, we only had documentary things playing uh, on television in my home. Never sports. Okay. Uh, my father his autobiography. I'm sorry, his biography is, is out right now um, on, on Amazon, and it's called Unstoppable: The Siggy B. Wilsig Story. And um, and so he was an Auschwitz survivor and de deprived of his education from the fifth grade when he started doing forced labor before age 16, eventually being shipped to Auschwitz with his family, 59 of his relatives murdered, and, and he amazingly made it through and was liberated at the end of the war from the Mauthausen concentration camp. So, so uh, I have to say that as a preface, because if not, it would make no sense, that when my friends would come over junior high or high school, um, if they didn't know my father's background, they would have thought we were neo-Nazis ourselves because on every television in the house, all you could see was like the Hitler rallies with millions of people screaming, Sieg Heil, 
in, in, the, in, in the different squares and things in, in Berlin um, because the world at war, which was like a 20 part series on World War II uh, on PBS or something, um, was played in its entirety every single time it was broadcast, which back in those days of less content was all the time. Right, right. So, so, so you had that. And then when he and I, he was always working. And, and, uh, and when he and I would have some free time together, we would watch the, the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and, oh, yeah. and, which was like the only animal nature show sure. uh, to watch. So everything was, was always uh, about education or educational things and he considered sports whether it be the play of them let alone the watching of them uh or the talking about them to be a, a huge waste of time so so uh, occasionally the u.s open might be on to, to see a couple tennis matches but other than that no sports whatsoever so as a kid i really had to um go looking for my own sports heroes or or contemporary heroes in general and um and so it's I, I still don't know how exactly but at a very early age and, and again i'm born in 65 so so we're talking about like 79 it was extremely difficult in the united states to follow either the 24 hours of le mans mm -hmm. or the dakar rally and yet those were the two things that i sunk my teeth into as the absolute coolest um, and, and naturally, both of them are, are, are very much defined, of course, as, as like that ultimate uh, test of man and machine. Right. You know, it's a, it's a cliche, and it can be used for, for virtually any kind of motorsports. But really, a 24-hour race, particularly, well, I'm not that old, but, but as you know, it, you know, it, it was a, a feat just to keep a race car going for 24 hours, let alone to win the race. And, and with the Dakar Rally, to get through 10 days without breaking your neck on a sand dune and dying. Right. And when, when, when between one and three would die a year, similar to like the Isle of Man, you know, right. but, but that I didn't get into until afterwards, that was too obscure. Um, <laughs> and, and so, and so that said, while it was extremely difficult and oftentimes I'd be reading uh, in a magazine a month later, the digest of either one of those things, uh, because there just was no cable or anything, right. certainly nothing online. You, you, you literally couldn't follow it from the U.S., and yet I was super intrigued by both. So I would say that, that both of those things um, pretty much hit at the same time, and my friend, uh, who was the only friend that owned, and I, and I used to walk in my neighborhood, there was a Yamaha motorcycle dealership, and I had uh, two friends that had YZ80 dirt bikes, and I used to walk by Yamaha dealership and see it, uh, the anniversary edition again, the, the, the Bumblebee uh, of the, like the RZ350 Kenny Roberts uh, bike and a YZ80 in that same black, yellow, and white combo. And, and, and it was, uh, you know, it was the most tantalizing thing that I would ever see. And I would ask for one constantly from my father. And, and he would say to me, um, as, a, as an answer every time. And, and we're talking about once a month for years and, and uh, every birthday, every, every holiday, every anything, that's all I wanted. And he would say, you know, we live in the suburbs in Clifton, New Jersey. There's no place for you to ride. So if, if I get you that, you're either, God forbid, gonna get hit, hit by a car riding it on the side of the road or, or trying to look from one trail to the next, 
or, or, or the police are just going to take it and confiscate it and, and, uh, and it's going to be a problem. But don't worry, because one day I'm going to buy a farm in Pennsylvania and you can have all the dirt bikes that you want and, and, and that's the place to do it. So that was always his, his sort of pat answer to, to, to get me to, to move, you know, change topics uh, or change objects and, and, uh, and move along. But both things, I think, hit because of my friend Chris Morano, who's a school, a school friend um, from middle and high school, who uh, his dad is sort of the opposite. His father had lost a leg in, uh, in an automobile accident before my friend was born. And so he made up for the fact that he was unable to play sports with his son by buying him three dirt bikes at a time every two years. They lived, wow. they lived another 20 minutes out, sort of out by like the Vernon Valley Great Gorge ski area in North Jersey uh, in, a, in a more country setting, a more rural setting. And he would buy him three dirt bikes at a time so that Chris would have one and there would be two for other friends to come over and ride with him. So he taught me how to how to shift a motorcycle and ride it uh, for the first time, of course, that I that I had tried from a friend in my neighborhood that had like a little Briggs and Stratton one, um, five horsepower lawnmower powered. I did, of course, like whiskey throttle bouncing up and down and, <laughs> and, and flew over a fence like everyone the first time they try and uh, or nearly everyone. And, uh, and and then I say shortly thereafter, I probably did that at 15. And and uh, and by 16, Chris taught me how to ride. And by 19, um, we did a, a 10 day vacation at age tw yeah, 19 or 20. We did a 10 day vacation in uh, Jamaica together and rented two XR 650s and circumnavigated the whole island and then wow. crisscrossed across the middle. It did an X both ways, north, south, east, west. Um, and that was crazy because, you know, you talk about something, A, feeling like a Dakar-like adventure sure. for, for a 20-year-old that didn't grow up with a dirt bike um, and, and, and seeing things and, and literally going into little villages where they don't ever see a white person. So it was as cool as going to Africa yeah. in, in that regard. It was like going across the Sahara. I really did feel uh, Dakar-like. And getting into all kinds of crazy misadventures where there's growing 10,000 acres of of of, uh, of of Blue Mountain coffee on one side and 10,000 acres of ganja on the other, <laughs> guys on horsebacks and shotguns protecting their crops, sure. and um, just crazy, crazy adventure. But you talk about something inspiring to say this is the coolest thing in the world from getting a, a suntan on a motorcycle instead of on a chaise lounge by a pool. Yeah. And, and meeting people and seeing things and, and that whole visceral sensation of traveling somewhere by bike and being in the environment instead of in a bubble within the environment sure. was, um, was ultra inspiring. So that as soon as I graduated from college, age 22, um, and, and college I'd say was the, the ratchet up for both things because my father had, uh, in the same way my brother got his Nissan uh, or, or Dotson at the time for getting accepted into law school uh, and doing well on the law boards and things like that. Um, I got into in a two-step way. I didn't get into the to, to University of Pennsylvania where my brother had also gone, uh, good Ivy League school. I didn't get in from uh, high school. 
So I had to go to Boston University as a freshman, get straight A's and get into University of Pennsylvania liberal arts, get straight A's and then transfer as a junior within the school to the Wharton School of Business undergrad. So, so I was never a straight A student, uh, not because of the aptitude, but because of not really applying myself uh, to study as much as I should, rather spending my time running around Manhattan with my brother since we were only 20 minutes away. And that said, my, uh, the, the carrot that was dangled in front of me to get two years of straight A's was to get a, a, a new 1987 Corvette, which still to this day, um, if, if you were to say of all the, you know, people always ask me with the motorcycles because I've never had more than, let's say, a dozen cars at any one time, six for the road, six race. Now it's less, uh, less for the road. Um, and, and, if, and, and, but people ask all the time, you know, if you could only have one bike, which one would it be? Uh, but few ask me about the cars because naturally you see a half a dozen cars, it doesn't inspire that same type of, of, uh, of rationale of, of question. But, but I would say that that 1987 Corvette, which, uh, which I, it was red on black and I did like, uh, like Ferrari boxer trim from the rubber belt line down was a satin black and, uh, and put a wing on it and, and great three piece racing wheels and things and that car to this day um was was the car that even with my mclaren and 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 having owned a dozen ferraris and and all the other big names that you think of uh, of exotic cars and things that was the car that every single time i went to open the door it was like a pinch me moment that i could not believe that 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 that, that it felt like except for being like peter pan and having the ability to fly this is about the coolest thing that 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 could have possibly happened uh, to me. Hey, if that's that. what started it all. I mean, you know. So yeah. and I, and I raced that car in a in an autocross. So so again, something I, I haven't talked to you about anyone or thought of, but but that also um, the, the the handling on that car was so razor sharp. You know, it was tough over bumps, but so right. razor sharp that it was like an autocross car. So I entered an autocross for uh, for Phoenix House which is a major drug and alcohol rehab uh, in Manhattan, a huge, a huge center uh, that's been decades in existence. So they did on Randall's Island, sort of underneath the Triborough Bridge in, a, in an odd area. They have music festivals and things there uh, to this day. Difficult to, to get to, as I say, sort of in between three bridges uh, between Manhattan and Queens or something. But I did what they call the drive against drugs, um, which was a, uh, a sanctioned autocross. I had to be wavered in or something. I didn't have any license or, but it was a proper SECA autocross. And I just went in cold, no practice, never did it before. Had to learn what the rules were uh, <laughs> to enter. And, and, uh, and, it, and, and I ended up winning for uh, the American car. So a guy won, a guy won in a 911. I think there was 30 of us, maybe 35. Yeah. And, and I won for the American car, uh, a guy in a 911 won for the European car, and someone who was a real hardcore autocrosser, who I would later meet in my racing uh, 20 years later um, on a television show that, that ended up being filmed but never aired, um, called the Robin Hood Rally. I met the guy who, who was uh, the winner in the Japanese uh, uh, car division, 
and and uh, and he stayed autocrossing competitively for for many many years afterwards. So that was my first taste of all of that. So I'd say that that I owe both my friend Chris, even though my Corvette, of course, was an automatic transmission. Um, the same friend that taught me how to ride a dirt bike also taught me how to shift a manual car because uh, he had a 924 turbo uh, right. and then a, a 944. Uh, and then and then we would go on trips together up to Canada. Stupid, stupid high schoolers. We would uh, in, uh, last year high school and then into college. Every year we'd go up in August to Montreal with whatever new 911 he would get bought every single year. And um, and we thought we were so clever that we were going over the border into another country and uh, and we would find a perfect bowl where you could see two, three miles ahead of you uh, in, in, in uh, Quebec, let's say an hour outside of Montreal. And so you're just in farmland. And, and, uh, and it's perfect, of course, because when you have that, that sort of bowl in front of you, you can see that there's not even like a prairie dog or something that's, that's right. coming across the road as compared to completely flat where you're blind at the horizon. And, um, and, and we would open up the cars, take turns, and, and do top speed runs, 165 miles an hour or so in the 911. And years later, I find out that so many kids died and caused such mayhem in drag racing with that same idiotic philosophy that we had of kids from Quebec going to Plattsburgh, New York, and Vice, which is a border town, right, and vice right. versa, that they made a compact with DMV that if you um, that if you got a violation or speeding or anything, uh, New York and Quebec shared, even though New York and New Jersey didn't. Right. So we were so stupid that uh, that we were we thought we were being so clever, but we were doing the dumbest things in terms of jeopardizing our relatively new driver's licenses by going to one of the few places that actually did uh, share DMV points and things. But but uh, but all of that really instilled that that uh, that these childhood uh, attractions and followings to to uh, to off road motorcycling. I can't say that 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 motorcycle road racing had entered uh, onto my radar uh, as a kid. It really didn't. It was it was the rally the rally raid stuff on two wheels sure. and and uh, and endurance racing which is of course the racing that eventually I, I fell into myself after I sold the bank in 2003, uh, 2004, I should say, uh, sorry, my father passed in 03, but I started running the company in 2000 when he retired from illness. Uh, so so uh, 2004, I began my interest and 2006, I took my first Skip Barber school at Lime Rock in little single seaters and and uh, got my SCCA license and and jumped into the deep end of the pool with a, a West uh, uh, car, um, which is a, a sports racer prototype that looks uh, like a, a four fifth scale endurance racer thing only weighs a 1000 pounds has a, a GSXR or in my case, depending whether you were doing SECA or IMSA, a ZX10 uh, Kawasaki motor. So that thing's tuned to put out about 185 horsepower and that kind of trim. And, um, you know, pushed, pushed pretty far to the envelope. Um, 
because you're, you're rebuilding them pretty frequently. So you're not looking for the same durability as a bike and you know, it's not going to, uh, you know, not going to last the way a bike motor would when it's under that kind of load. Sure. And, and, uh, and the crazy thing was from not having done the typical route to car racing of going from a spec Miata to, to, uh, you know, to a E30 BMW, uh, where, where you can buy $150 fenders when you bang it up right. and, and where the cars have very low grip. This thing had grip like a Le Mans prototype racer. So, so every corner, everyone passed me every time because <laughs> it, it was just amazing to me. It was like street riding with my buddies. When I got my first Ducati that I, that I got at a charity auction for the rainforest, I, I, I hosted a big gala in 1999 and I was the bank for Ducati at the time and uh they were headquartered in New Jersey before they moved to California and so I got them to donate a 750 monster and a 900 SS the new fuel injected style and it had only been out about a year and um and I made sure that I was the high bidder for the monster because the only bikes that I had had at that moment was a Suzuki DR350 which was the very first uh, the, the S, the street, the street uh, enduro version, which was the right. uh, the bike that I immediately purchased uh, 15 minutes after graduating uh, from college and having a garage by way of a rented summer home with my brother in the Hamptons. So I had a place to ride it out east and a place to stash it that wasn't in my parents' garage back <laughs> in New Jersey, where right. uh, where it would have caused uh, an issue. So so. Uh, so that said, uh, everything pretty much uh, came from from that moment, and I there was another thing written in Cycle World where uh, they spoke of it, it, was, it was a I think two years before where uh, they did a story on me and my friends uh, riding our bikes all over the Hamptons and the fact that that I would leave my Ferrari convertible sitting in the driveway. And we and my girlfriend and I would later to become my wife that we would leather up and and jump on the bikes and we'd go to Hamptons Polo or this party or that event and and follow the whole social scene but show up with six of our friends or eight of our friends on on yellow and red motorcycles and uh, you know with, with that all the gear all the time mindset sure and and uh, and so we looked like space invaders you know showing up at a garden party. <laughs> it was uh, it was crazy enough so that the New York Times did a little thing on us for their for their style section of, of just taking pictures of us pulling in and as a half a dozen of us into exactly that into a, a Sunday social polo match of one of those glorified cocktail parties where nobody's watching the polo match or, or knows whether it's going on or not. Everybody's just looking at each other and eating and drinking. So I'm sure that raised more than a few eyebrows. Yeah, it was super fun. I mean, and in that environment, nobody's on bikes of any kind. There's yeah. just, you know, at that time, there were so few bikes out there that that I still remember I had gotten because of, of trying to keep the summer heat off, um, all white, like a white Dionese one piece and and uh, and white boots and white gloves and a white helmet. So Looked like the stick. The, <laughs> exactly. The stick on a bike. And of course, a white perf suit. The only thing that'll that'll a white perf kangaroo suit. The best, yeah. you know, if you got to be covered uh in July, that's that's the way. 
and and I remember getting off and, and seeing a, a kid come up to me before I took my helmet off, blacked out visor. And and the kid comes up, maybe five years old, he goes, Hey, mister. And I looked down, and he goes, Are you from the future? And, <laughs> and it's like he wasn't pulling my leg, you know, that he was too young for sarcasm. Yeah. Uh, but but uh but for him it was like a you know, an astronaut. Absolutely. Uh, going into the ice cream parlor. So so uh so everything about it, including being being a guy who was on all the right lists to be invited to all these parties to begin with but 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 always showed up in my own way so to right. speak so so it really became a bit of an identity that that uh that it was very funny when you know i i always try and respond whether it's a youtube thing or something where people will often be surprised that even if there's a thousand comments I try and reply to all thousand and even if I didn't post it, but if I'm the subject and, and, uh, and of course, very few people do that. So, so, uh, so I've had some really funny moments where someone will comment on my wife's, uh, posterior or something <laughs> expecting I'm the last person that's going to read it and comments, uh, you know, a, a troll comment as it were. Yeah. And I would respond yeah. and say, well, you know, you're a little crude. But at least we have two things in common. We both love my wife's ass and motorcycles. So hi, <laughs> nice to meet you. And uh, and, they, and right, it right immediately would write back, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And, and you'd see he was actually a completely polite, completely nice person, not troll-like at all. But yeah. when you're in the anonymity of, of a YouTube comment section, people just lose their shit sometimes and, and say ridiculous things Absolutely. or fly off at the cuff. It's so, interesting because, yeah, I mean, you 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 call people on it and it's funny how some people will sort of like cower a little bit and all of a sudden they're they're nice and want to be respectful because you're having to have an exchange with someone. They're not just throwing a, a comment. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could, I, you know, that that was a particularly funny one. And that reminds me of another thing, too, which is, as every enthusiast knows, you know, if you're not a professional or, or, or semi-pro racer or something, um, for all of us, we... We never get a chance to spend as much time in the saddle as we wish. Right. And and work, family, everything, life. And so, so much of our enthusiasm um, is channeled through, no pun intended, something like listening to this podcast and and uh, and talking to our friends about bikes and hanging out in, in our garage and our buddies' garages and things. So so that's really why for me. The, the 15,000 square foot moto building, as we call it, that has our shop, that houses my collection, um, is a really lavishly overbuilt uh, building. I, I saw, I've always been an architectural buff and I've always been involved in construction and design, even if it was at the bank. And so I saw a, uh, a lazy brow shaped uh, helicopter air sea rescue hangar uh, on the Australian coast in a, an architectural magazine really beautiful and and sort of like uh the arch of a seagull's wing instead okay. of a half barrel roof like an old supermarket turned into a bowling alley or something right. in a in a shopping center right and so that to me was the perfect way to diminish that it didn't look like i built a big ugly lexus dealership on my on my pretty <laughs> farm and right. ruined everything so i used core 10 steel which which is rusted it's a, a non-galvanized uncoated steel so it was rusted before it's even unloaded from the truck and, and used that as the siding and did this like seagull arch, seagull wing arch roof, which also uh, 
sort of blended into the landscape. And so, um, so it was with that philosophy of even with the racetrack here, six months of the year, it's too cold for grip or there's snow or whatever. And you can only go around any track so many times on so many days, but you can have friends from all over the world come and, and talk about this stuff and have a beer together or sure. smoke or whatever. And, and, uh, and, and that's kind of limitless. So this of course came much later. I didn't uh, buy that property until I left the Hamptons. When I got married, my brother was, uh, was, uh, is very much a, a swinging single uh, guy. And, and so as soon as I got married to my 12 year live in girlfriend, in, in 04, um, he, he asked that I buy him out of the, of the big party castle that I had built for us in the Hamptons because it's going to be uh, babies and friends with babies and nannies and friends with nannies, <laughs> and it's going to ruin the whole topless girls at the pool vibe. So, so he kind of forced me to buy him out. And I said, after having created as a 30-year-old such a big splash with this crazy flashy castle thing in the, in the Hamptons, um, I couldn't imagine like a, a, a third act in the Hamptons. I really felt like I had done it. And also I was so into bikes at the time that we were just getting kind of more and more reckless doing the same roads faster and faster, uh, as our skills improved and as the bikes improved and, and, and the, and the congestion out there, more and more subdivisions and, and luxury ones to be sure, but same thing, just too many driveways. And, and too many people driving yeah, blind, right. you know, looking for where the party is when there's all these long driveways and things with no street signs or, or house signs. So it's a really toxic environment. And, and to be honest, you know, I was just numb from, from having gone 4,000 times to go see the Montauk Lighthouse, at, you know, at the end of the island. You just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And so I said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to do this Field of Dreams thing. I'm going to find myself a place because I had friends at the time, two, two friends had gotten in some significant accidents out there. Um, one, one got hit by a car or forced off the road by a car that wasn't paying attention. And the other hit a deer and then, or the deer hit him. And, and then from that hit the simplest, no parking sign with, with one of those U shaped, you know, stamped, perforated green posts on it yeah but it hit him just the wrong way broke his elbow broke his shoulder broke his hip broke his knee in a straight line okay. on the bike sitting up on a on a triumph speed triple and and i said so so one of one or two of our friends made the decision back in, in the early 2000s that they were going to give up riding on the street and only do track days i had just started to do track days at the time um and, and started my my california superbike school with keith code uh adventures which i eventually did about 17 18 days with him then later did 18 days with the ycrs uh, champ school yamaha sure. um and never raced a bike but but um but always wanted to be able to um to ride any race bike and to ride like a racer but but i always give the caveat that i that i never entered any actual motorcycle race as compared to the car stuff. The car stuff, just a quick wrap up. So, so I have this, this car that, that is like uh, 
28 inches off the ground, you know, the, the, the West prototype sports racer. And, and, uh, and I would go, I was a member of the Lime Rock Club. My track was still in litigation or planning or whatever, but I didn't have a track at the time. And, and I wanted to, to not just be the guy who bought all this stuff, but had never even raced peewee motocross. Like it just didn't make sense to own a racetrack and just like racing, but not having done any racing. You know, I felt like I'd be embarrassed that, that I'd have real racers and, and things coming to visit and, and, and only have experience like on my own little, or, or not little, but whatever, my own backyard track just didn't, uh, didn't sit well with me. And, and I finally had the time and the ability to do it after the bank was sold. So, so I started going to, to uh, track days in preparation, uh, automotive track days. And I realized it was a really dangerous situation because, um, hold on one second. Because um, <clears throat> there were never enough of these either small formula cars or prototype cars, which at that scale is really not much different than like a Formula Atlantic car, except that the wheels are covered, cockpits okay. open, yeah. but you've got bodywork covering the wheels. But otherwise, <clears throat> if you take that off, it looks just like a Formula car. So we would be put into groups based on sometimes ability, uh, speed, and, and I would be out there with cars that if I spun sideways, someone could be in a Ford Mustang GT350 or, or, uh, or even a Porsche and, and, and drive right over me and yeah, just take my head off. Yeah, and you're scaled down, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, a 3,500-pound car versus a 900-pound car. Right. So, so the, um, the IMSA races, and I, I had done uh, two SECA races, but with all respect, to the SECA, I was miserable in that environment because while I appreciate, you know, and, and I've come to appreciate on, on an increasing level, the dedication and what it means for people to volunteer to be corner workers and marshals and stewards and things like that and never get a dime, but it's just their way of staying connected to racing and, and being part of it, even at an amateur level. But, but you know, I was a newbie and everybody was so harsh that it reminded me of what pushed me into the motorcycle culture instead of the sports car culture as a 20 something, because at, at 24, I ended up selling that beloved Corvette using like my bar mitzvah money savings, $10,000 that I got from a, from an inheritance from a grandfather and put everything together to buy a 1982 uh, Ferrari 308. Uh, GTS uh, Targa uh, in, in fly yellow with that same black boxer trim that I always like the yeah. blacked out lower half that makes it sit visually that much closer into the asphalt and it makes it look more low slung and so I went to a Ferrari club Sunday event at the Bridgehampton racetrack of course long before it became a golf course and <laughs> and uh and the guys there, which again, I came to understand it later. But at the time, as a as a 24-year-old, 
showing up with a Ferrari, the, the value of them had skyrocketed because of that whole bubble of 1990 of the death of Enzo Ferrari and, and all the speculation that only the cars built while he was alive were going to be real. The rest right. were just going to be glorified fiats. So, so the, the values of them had shot up like crazy. And, and as a social amulet, it became an even bigger deal uh, to, to own one. And, and so I understand that someone who has worked for 25 years to be able to afford that car, and that's been a dream for them, sees a 24-year-old Lucky Sperm Club rich kid with one and snubs his nose. And, right. and, uh, and, and, it, and it sort of touches them in all the, the wrong ways. And, and you could, you know, as I would, you could try your hardest to not be an arrogant little shit, but you're still looked at that way. Right. Even, even if you're the most polite, most mannered, most respectful young man, it doesn't make a difference. You're there with your pretty blonde girlfriend and, and, uh, and, and they just want to, and they just want to give you the shoulder. So it was such a turnoff and, and, and the culture that I was seeing, again, it was not a racing thing. They happened to be having a track day or, right. or, a, or, a, or a tuned down track day, so to speak, a, a ride around the track day is more like it. Sure. Um, it, was, it was a glorified picnic. But I just felt so much snobbery, not just because of the age, but even the guys it seemed like they were more into the value of the car than the performance of the car. Right. They certainly were not a group that ever came close to probing the performance levels of their car, even back in 1990, where it didn't come close to today. That's been one of the big surprises, by the way, of, of my track. The, the two most fun things that I would say as a surprise from two wheels and four from two wheels is having like 17 to 19 year old, whether it's Brendan Pash or, or, or other, you know, bona fide racers on the move, either racing in Moto America, Moto Two. I've never had a Moto GP rider there, but 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 everything but. And they would always say to Pete, who was my is my general manager now of the whole place, but at the time he was just my director of motorsports and 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 crew chief. Or when we'd be on the road racing and and uh sometimes they would have to be there on a midday week uh because of racing on weekends of course so they'd want to test out some new brakes or, or or do something but they'd be up there with pete in my absence <clears throat> and and there i'll tell you two quick funny stories and so they would th this would happen many times the car thing happened happened once and that was they would say um Pete would say, so you want me to take you out for a couple laps, show you the line or whatever? And, and they would kind of scoff like, you know, that's what I do. You know, I show up at new tracks every Thursday and I'm racing on them by Saturday or Sunday. So so digesting a track uh, is, is my thing. So so I'll be fine. And then they would invariably throw in sort of a, and I have a feeling I'll be okay. I'm like your boss's backyard little practice track, you know? Right. And they'd go out and within three laps, 17, 19 years old, you know, strong and lean like a young motorcycle racer always is. And they pull in huffing and puffing, sweating like crazy, flipping the visor up, doused in sweat and say, holy shit, I've never worked so hard on a motorcycle in my life. 
I feel like I'm on a, a motorcycle ergo rowing machine in the gym that just doesn't stop 400 pounds to the left, 400 pounds to the right and, and uh, over the hill, up the hill, left and right again. And so it was really a great credit uh, to, to me, to my, uh, to my excavating contractor and his foreman, because we did, uh, to, to tell you a two sentence story, I show up, I had a house for 10 years in the south of Spain, in Marbella, uh, Costa del Sol. And, um, and I show up at the Ascari Motorsports Country Club, which was just being built at the time. Sure. Yeah. Similar thing, this guy Klaus Zwart had uh, just sold his underwater uh, oil drilling rig repair company for a couple hundred million bucks, a North Sea underwater drilling, uh, underwater welding company. And, um, and use that money to build Ascari, which very much was the inspiration for me. Yeah, I was going to ask I, about that. Yeah, because I've actually been to a Ducati launch there, and it's a beautiful yeah. track. And, and a lot of the Ducati. corners are modeled on famous, uh, you know, corners from other racetracks. So, yep. So, so he, was, he was both uh, an inspiration and a negative inspiration. The positive inspiration was that prior to him doing a little act of vanity, which to me was one of the dumbest things I ever saw with all respect to Klaus, love the guy, but, but he had won, you know, as he, as he toured me through his, uh, his collection building and, 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 and uh, garage for his future members, he showed me an interesting array of his own cars. And, and again, early, early pre-construction members' cars that were already being stored there. A Bayless, uh, a Bayless World Superbike um, that he had bought from Ducati after becoming friends with them because of, like you say, events there and things. And um, I ended up holding the record there, which was really funny. I, I, I go up and I always had to choose. I had three bikes. I had a KTM uh, Super Duke. Um, I had a Benelli Tornado tray and a of course dakar style uh, uh the, the ktm 950 adventure sure uh the adventure s that came with the galois uh cigarette livery and um and was the tallest motorcycle ever sold 990 <laughs> millimeter saddle yeah um if there was a pothole next to you even at six feet tall you'd have to play like human kickstand and, and pivot your ass <laughs> to figure out which leg you're going to shoot down because you're not getting both down at the same time, half the time. And, uh, and so I would always have to decide which bike do I want to take up the infamous twisty Ronda road that leads oh, you up from fantastic the road. Yeah. I've ridden it a bunch of times. Yeah. At the top of a mountain, you go through the cloud layer. Yeah. It's super cool. There's no guardrails, these concrete blocks with spaces between them, just yeah. right for a motorcycle to go off the abyss. <laughs> and sure enough, it would happen. Um, cause you had hundreds of feet of, of cliffs with, with a forest underneath and, and I would go and see on Saturdays and Sundays and I'd see what looked like memorials of like a motorcycle helmet and some flowers and things on, on, on the, the apex of a corner. And sure enough, ask one of my local friends, there's a lot of British guys that were there for the summer and that I would do track days with at Jerez and, um, and I'd say, what's with the memorials? I said, did someone go off 
on every one of those corners where I see the helmets and the flowers, sure enough. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, eventually the, the Guardia Civil, the state police there, uh, or national police would, um, would find and therefore prohibit people from putting those type of memorials. But, but you talk about something being macabre. You're, yeah. you're riding on a bike and, and, and you don't want to target fixate, but yep. it's tough not to target fixate where you see red carnations from where a motorcycle uh, went off a cliff and you find out that they found the bike, but it took three days for them to find the body of the rider because it was still up in a tree. Yeah. Oh, really, really scary shit. Um, so, so as I, which brings me back to, like I say, of, of what my inspiration was, dual inspiration of wanting to build this track to begin with. And that is as the Hamptons buddies, the two of whom who were the most accomplished, they would work as control riders for track days for Nesba and things. And, and they say, we're only doing track days from now on. We're going to go to VIR. We're going to go to New Hampshire. We're going to go to, to Beaver Run. And these tracks now, now uh, pit race. And uh, I just signed up for some, some track days there for July and August. And, um, and I would look and say, wow, you know, I'm not as good as Billy, but I love it as much. I, I could do that track day thing too. And, and, uh, and limit my exposure uh, and, and, and uh, you know, I see all the time the guys go sliding, you know, you're armored up. Yeah. There's nothing, to, there's nothing to hit. They go, which brings me back to Ascari in a minute. They, they, they slide 300 feet and get up and dust themselves off. That's the kind of motorcycle accident that I want to be in. Right. Not, not these ones on the street that are seven months in a hospital and rehab. And, um, and sure enough, um, I, I, so I, I say, okay, that's the direction I want to go in. And then I see what it takes to do that. And, and my friends are more mechanical guys than me. They're, they're contractors and stuff. They're much more tool savvy and trailer savvy. And I'm looking going, you know, Billy must spend seven hours total. Again, he's, he's, he's not doing it with, with a, a rain cloud coming, but, but taking his time. But, but the whole process of getting everything ready and loaded in the trailer is like a six, seven hour ordeal. Then he's driving seven hours to VIR. Sure. For seven hours of fun and then 14 hours of the same ride back and unloading. And I admired the dedication, but I looked at that. That is totally not me. Yeah. You know, that, that's way too much effort for what's 20 minutes times seven of fun. If it doesn't rain, if somebody doesn't oil the track, if, if, if. Right. And if not, it's four sessions times 20 minutes or five. And I say, God, it feels like he's doing 100 hours of effort for 100 minutes of, of track riding. That is, that, that's never going to do it for me. And I'm going to end up saying, pretending that I'm just going to do the track thing. But that's never going to be enough motorcycling for me. And that's going to be way too much um, way too much effort surrounding it that it's going to make it feel like a chore instead of a, a joy so so that's really the inspiration that me starting to think is it possible for me to build a track that would really feel like a real track that would be you know 13 meters or, or, or 40 feet as we call it wide that would enable you to take seven different seven different ways of of creating your own you know your own curve and, and, and maybe bi-directional 
so that it can be run both ways for a road racing course, as we all know, an uphill left becomes a downhill right. They have nothing right. to do with each other. And yeah. sure enough, my track has is shaped kind of like a, a lobster claw and has a crook at the claw that you can use as a transition. So you can be going counterclockwise, then use that transition on the second lap to go uh, in the alternate direction and then do a full lap in that alternate direction. So you wow. can end up doing, my track's about 1.2 miles. You can end up doing 1.2, 0.8, and another 1.2 and end up with three miles or so of of uh, of a lap of course you can't do it with five guys on because you, yeah. you know you'll broadside each other like right, a demolition right. figure eight derby <clears throat> but um but if you're just riding you know two at a time me and a buddy or me and a coach or whatever you yeah. absolutely can do that and, and then you really can't believe that you're in a, a backyard as i as i say even if it's a 250 acre backyard notwithstanding so so jumping around the fun of seeing the, the the kids there as i say really redeemed the fact that we had designed it right in terms of the design philosophy of course um klaus at ascari was very proud of the fact that he had copied this turn from monza and this from from silverstone and so forth i didn't know nearly enough about racing to even know corner by corner like I do today, uh, right. of know every every famous corner of every famous track from being a, a, a MotoGP and a and and a Formula One and other uh, endurance racing. So so of course I know it now, but but back at the time I absolutely did not. Um, so that was not an inspiration and and seemed like something that if you just have a big Mesa, like he does at the top of, of that Ronda Mountain plateau, that's a, a reasonable place to create whatever kind of corners you want. I was dealing with the rolling hills of Columbia County, which is like the foothills. It, it's adjacent to the Berkshires of Massachusetts. I describe it to people, the location of my farm, um, or Wills of Racing Manor, as it's officially known, um, as it's at the nexus where uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York all come together at one point. So okay. it's on the eastern banks of the Hudson. Whenever you say upstate New York, people always think you're going to the Catskills, which is diagonally north and west of New York City. I'm just directly due north. You follow the banks of the Hudson, either by car or by train, and, and in uh, 100 miles, you're, you're, uh, you're at my farm. Okay. And so, so uh, I'm dealing with topography, which was a blessing and a curse. You had to follow it, and the only way that I could even begin to follow it was by buying uh, a couple Honda Pilots and Odysseys, the FL350s and FL400s, and uh, they're, they're so far out of production that if someone's not old enough, you say Honda Pilot, they think you're talking about an SUV or a right, minivan right. or right. something. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the coolest thing is, as Klaus Zwart is showing me around his garage, I see in the corner... Uh, two Honda Pilots, the distinctive red two Honda Pilots. I go, whose are those? And he goes, <laughs> I go, I've got those too. And he's showing me like real Le Mans prototypes and crazy stuff. I told you, Bayless's bike for real, $200,000 motorcycle that you're going to be you know, lucky enough, like my friend Camming, who's, who's got Rossi's MotoGP bike. Oh, yeah. You, know, you have to be picked for the privilege of being able to buy it. Forget yeah. about being able to afford it. And, um, and, and I said, so what's with those? And he goes, oh, those, he goes, I used with my son and with my paving contractor 
to go around and figure out whether these corners work before we grade <laughs> them and before we pay them. I said, no way, man. That's what I did. Right. And, and, uh, and that's what I'm doing right now. So, so it's very funny how that, that vehicle, which was already at the time, six years out of production, and we were buying like restored ones on, on eBay and from, from independent companies that were sort of remanufacturing them, company in Michigan and a few others. So, so it's funny how he, he took his desire of replicating these famous corners, but then sort of doing a proof of concept by way of Honda Pilots and then eventually a rally car and you work your way up closer sure. and closer to paving. And for me, I didn't want to copy any of those corners or, or even know of them, but I needed that Honda Pilot to go through this old cornfield and figure out what hill what hills are going to work to my benefit and, and what what I'm going to be able to earth move and not move. And uh, and and so we did it really seat of the pants, using the topography to guide us as to how this track wanted to be. The only the only caveat, the only exception to that was uh, Keith Code, who, as I say, is now a 30-year great friend, he was on his way from, like, New Jersey Motorsports Park, which was barely in existence, up to Loudoun, New Hampshire. Okay. And on the way, he deviated to stop at my place under construction. Uh, I later was able to welcome him and the whole CSS school to come not so much to give a school, which I did with Yamaha, where they actually did a private school at my place, okay. which was awesome because they invited uh, just their special like friends of the school, again, for the privilege of paying to be part of it. Yeah. But you also got to stay at my house and, and, and be entertained by me and food and drink by me and everything nice. for four days. So they wanted to make sure that there were no jerk offs. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so they, they invited four or five um, sort of VIP friends, all of whom became my enduring friends to this day. We did it in 2014, and I've been friends with every single one of those guys for the last eight years since. One of them, Oscar Blondie, became actually a best friend. And um, and so um, with with Ascari, the, the other thing, the positive inspiration that I say, unfortunately, that he couldn't leave alone I never had seen a racetrack in my life that had no concrete Jersey barriers, no chain link fences, nothing ugly, nothing dangerous to hit. Even if you were to slide the wrong way on wet grass, whatever. Yeah. Just asphalt and grass. Like it had grown organically and just materialized, you know, in the grass and just a ribbon, just a beautiful ribbon of asphalt through what's already a beautiful landscape. You've been there, so you know. Oh, yeah, how gorgeous yeah, it yeah. is. It's like, you know? it's like somebody paved a golf course. It's just like, exactly. it's really manicured and it's beautiful, yeah. That's exactly right. So I paved the golf course, hits it. And so I looked at that, which I think, by the way, every golf course should be paved, but that's just <laughs> me. And, and, uh, and so <clears throat> I looked at it and said, wow, man, this is so beautiful and, and, and so enticing that... I really could live with this in harmony and not feel like, like I'm living at a, at a general aviation airport or something like that uh, as a caretaker, but, but, but that, it, that, that it could be in harmony with nature. And, and when it's not used, 
you just want to walk it, man. You, yeah. you want to take a bicycle on it. It's just so beautiful. And unfortunately, I'm not sure what year you went there, but as he was taking me through his garage, Klaus Zwart, showing me all this cool stuff, before we came up on the pair of red Honda Pilots, we came up on two ex-Michael Schumacher uh, Marlboro F1 cars, each one a million and a half dollar car. Yeah. One was his and one was his 25-year-old son's at the time. And they were running in the Euro Boss series, which is ex-Formula One cars and ex-Indy cars, Boss standing for big open single seaters. And, <laughs> and uh, so talk about like rich guy weekend racing. Holy shit. Having a crew of eight guys that know how to crew an F1 car yeah. is like, you know, running an amateur F1 team, which is almost an oxymoron in itself. But, but it's the most money you could spend, more than historic racing, more than vintage racing, more than anything, is that boss stuff. And so he won the championship, and his son, I think, came in third. And, and then he won the championship, I think, a second time. And, and, uh, and then he insisted that he be able to host his, his uh, special use permit and things was very much the same as mine. Thou shalt not hold a spectator event or a professional or amateur race on your thing. For him, he could run it as a motorsports country club. And for right. me, it was approved for friends and family only. Okay. Occasional charity event or something like that or a media event, but not to hold competitive racing. And... And so he got a waiver from the town. He basically invited the whole town to come. Um, and, and he wanted to host a round of the Euroboss at Ascari. And it was a real mistake because the FIA had to come out the year before and approve the track. Okay. And so all of a sudden, these quaint little beautiful wooden corner worker stands and things that again, once the wood silvers, it goes right into nature. You don't even notice it. It also just looks organic like a tree trunk. Yeah. It's silvered, you know? Yeah. And all of a sudden they come out. I'm there that day while they're doing it or among the days that they did it. And they're measuring everything everywhere. And they're like, you can't put corner workers here. The car slides off here and hits the thing. Even if the guy's in the stand, you're going to take the stand out right from under him right. and kill him. Right. So you've got to have fencing here and catch fencing there and concrete there. And I don't know whether he ever removed the stuff a year or two later, but when I came there the following year and saw what he had to do to put the place into FIA um, safety compliance to hold one race where huge surprise, he won by two minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> The guy yeah. was already a champ in that in that series. Why he needed to to spank everybody that badly yeah. in his backyard was to me just a little bit of an act of hubris for for an otherwise super cool gearhead on his own right. Well, but, I probably uh, would have ruined that place because like it's been about ten years. I went actually went to two Ducati launches: one for the original Street Fighter, one for the Monster 1200S, and so that's going back to like 2012. So that's at least a decade. So. Yeah, it's you know if he he had to put in a bunch of concrete barriers and other structures and stuff that so would it, ruin stayed. the vibe of that place totally. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's amazing, and and um and and it makes you know such a difference to to um to have for me to have nothing to hit in both directions. Like I spent 
probably $100,000 on these foam air barriers, like you see that they put up at Isle of Man and other things where, sure. where you know, you can break your neck real well hitting a hay bale, as you know. Yeah. So, so these are the things that keep you from breaking your neck on a hay bale. And, and, um, and they're totally unnecessary because, you know, eventually we decommissioned them. They get beehives in them and, and they're pain in the ass. You can't store them in the winter. You'd need a building, uh, a giant building just to house them. And, and so the point is, um, yeah, we've been, you know, knock on wood. Um, I've been running the track now for 10 years uh, since, we, since we won the, the legal battle. Uh, in the Court of Appeals, the highest court uh, in New York State, and I was able to to, to do my paving, uh, my base coat right before uh, Thanksgiving when they shut the asphalt plants in 2009, and then my top coat in uh, April, birthday present for me, the end of April in 2010, and uh, and we copied. You know, I, I was so on this stuff because I love the engineering. You know, when you say gearhead, I don't come from an engineering background, but Again, going back to my dad, who was my idol, he used to tell people, you know, I always, I wish I went to, to school um, or had that, that, that ability or that opportunity. I, I've never turned on a computer in my life and, and don't know how to do it. And, and, and it would hold up his watch and say, and I have no idea how this wristwatch works. And, and, uh, and so for me to be able to figuratively and literally tell my dad one day how his wristwatch works um, and, and a thousand other things was, was the ultimate way to win favor with my father and, and to impress him. So, so I knew as much about anatomy and physiology um, and the human body as a kid, you would have sworn that I was going to be a doctor instead of carrying around one of my dad's decommissioned briefcases uh, with important business papers, quote, you know, which means like 10 year old annual reports that never got thrown in the garbage and, and, uh, and sitting on his lap, reading the wall street journal on a direct vector, knowing exactly what I had to do, going back to the Corvette, knowing I had to go to Wharton undergrad because I would not have time. He's 40, he was 40 years, my senior, I'm the baby in the family. And, and I'm 40 years older than my son named after him. Um, as Jews, we don't name our, our kids after living relatives, which is why you don't have juniors and seconds and thirds, right. but we name after deceased relatives to honor them. So I, my father had passed before my son was born and I, I named him in his memory. But the point is that 40 year age gap made a big difference at the bank in terms of a succession plan. So there was no way that I could go to university, then go two years working someplace and then go back for two years to get my MBA. Right. So I had to graduate from Wharton undergrad is the only school in America that I'd be able to say I graduated from Wharton and as the CEO or, or on my way up of, of becoming that over 20 years at the bank that nobody would ask or give a shit whether it was Wharton grad or Wharton undergrad, right. which is really the same thing anyway. Half the kids in my classes were graduate students first year. So, so, uh, so that said, tell you a funny anecdote when, when I say really um, how into it. I was four years old, four and a half. And, and uh, there was a couple leftover Jewish hotels in Atlantic City before the casino boom came. 
and and uh, sort of a dying breed like the Catskill Dirty Dancing hotels that I that I <laughs> yeah. grew up lifeguarding at and going you know going to as a kid in teenage years, and um, and that was also by the way where I learned how to ride a quad, how to ride a snowmobile, all that stuff, um, and and uh, and so the old Jews after after dinner. With a lot of elderly people and stuff, people there with their grandparents, multi-generation, typical Passover holiday. And so they're all just sitting around the lobby uh, uh, drinking coffee and eating cake, you know, the official after dinner activity sure. for, for elderly people worldwide and, and, and elderly yids for sure. And, uh, and I walk into the lobby and apropos of nothing, ask, is, is anyone here a cardiologist? And, and so like the whole room falls silent okay everybody starts flipping out coming over what is it young man it, it, you know they thought like god forbid that my dad had a heart attack in the parking lot or something sure and and uh and so a guy comes over and goes i'm a doctor what is it is it an emergency i go no no not an emergency i said what kind of doctor are you and he's like i'm a general practitioner i'm an internist such and such i go no i really need a cardiologist so a woman hears this and is kind of charmed and goes, you know, come, come here, young man. My husband's a cardiologist. She walks me through the back of the of the lobby, and the guy's looking at me. Uh, I literally, I'm like knee height, and uh, and he says, "I'm a cardiologist, son. How can I help you?" And I said, "I'm looking through my." I said, "I have a question. I'm looking through my my older brother and sister's biology and anatomy textbooks from 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 school, from high school, and they've got those transparent pages that you overlay." one over the other as you go through the layers like a CAT scan of the body. I said, um, and I see there's a, a superior vena cava and an inferior vena cava that comes off the heart. And I was just really curious, how come they don't just call it the upper and the lower, just one <laughs> above the other? And so the guy practically pisses in his pants. It's good that he wasn't drinking coffee at that second because he would have sprayed it in my face and says, and he just starts laughing and goes, that's a great question, uh, young man. He goes, I've wondered that myself. He said, but, uh, you know, with, with doctors coming from all over the world, they needed to have a common language. So they picked Latin and, and in Latin, it means upper and lower. So, so, so just keep studying because you're right on the, you're right on the money. You're going to make a, a great doctor one day. And, and I thought to myself, I have no desire to be a doctor. I just, <laughs> just curious. I just, just want to be able to impress my dad. Yeah. And, exactly. and, uh, and so, so that said, and, and that's probably the nicest compliment in general that people have ever given me is that I have a really broad base of knowledge and a, and a lot of things because that, you know, that because of those inspirational things that I told you, I really like set out as a teenager 40 years ago to wanting to know like 80% about 80% of everything in the world. Sure. Like I knew it, to, to know a hundred percent about everything would be at the expense of knowing 50 other things, sure. but to know just enough, to, to be able to, to talk of anything from history to politics, to military matters, to you name it, to, to mechanical things was, was always very important to me. And, and that's where motorcycling and, and car enthusiasm and racing really came in because it's impossible. I, I'm still a joke with, with a tool in my hand, but in terms of the understanding or right. even be able to suggest modifications or tuning or things like that, really felt like an accomplishment to me, not coming from any kind of mechanical, educational or otherwise uh, background. So it really enabled me to learn 
so much. And, and you know, lo and behold, you know, when, when you've been around racing enough, you can actually figure out why the lawnmower is not starting. Right. Which is right. an amazing moment, you know? <laughs> it's it's a, a threshold moment for someone who I say has no mechanical prowess whatsoever, but there's only spark and fuel and 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 uh, there's only so many things. So so uh, so that said, for me, one of the great pleasures besides seeing the 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 the, the kid get exhausted and need to do a drive through a ride through after three laps because it, it, he's never thrown a bike around that much. Uh, we had a, a great thing. We did the launch for the Audi TTRS uh, cool. about eight years ago, I think it was maybe nine years ago now. Uh, or eight. And uh, they brought three cars for the track and four cars for the journalists to take on the beautiful country roads. It was a three-day event, big budget, biggest I had ever had. And one of the engineers from Audi came out with an assistant two days before because while they didn't want to gin the test, uh, they did have the ability to choose between like a Pirelli tire and a Continental tire that were both considered OEM fitment sure and, and and therefore at least they wanted to pick the one that was better at wilson's track okay um my asphalt going back when i say i had a bunch of experts when i talk about the final co final pave we had um we had consulted i had become friends because of that cycle world article with with uh with uh with barber from from barber motorsports park Oh, George and, Barber? And George, yeah. 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 And and uh, just great timing. I was down there for California Superbike School at the exact moment that the Cycle World article hits where, where, where the journalist Mark Jenkinson makes a little comparison. I was honored by it to George Barber while I was at Barber. Oh, nice. So, so my secretary had sent me a FedEx of 10 of them. I gave one to Keith Code. And, and with the other, I go running to meet George Barber and say, look, they compared me to you. I'm so honored. And, and he took me by the hand. Because a friend had said to me, oh, you're at Barber and you're into cars and you're, you're into these Lotus lightweight cars and stuff. You should you should tell them who you are, because for for special guests, they, they take you to the back of the house and show you the restoration shop and stuff. Nice. And he'd take you to the downstairs and uh, hold on a second. Girlfriend turning on stereo. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Sorry about that. So, so, uh, so that I say, so, so, uh, so I show the, uh, the newspaper, the, the cycle world article to the receptionist and say, I know I was supposed to call in advance, but is there any chance you could maybe show this article and this rep, this reference of me to Mr. Barber to the general manager or something? And, and, and I could get that back of the house and downstairs tour. And, and uh, she goes, hold on, I'll, I'll check for you. And 10 minutes later, George himself comes out and spends three and a half hours with nice. me and two of, my, two of my buddies and takes us everywhere through the place. And I later became that, so to speak, of my own pro rata scale of, of uh, you know, one eighth or ninth of the number of motorcycles that he's got there. But as I say to you, we don't get enough time on the track, even when the track is in your backyard. Sure. It's still nighttime and raining and whatever. Right. And so, so people would would uh, would be so awed and, and still are coming, as I say, to, to have that to have a soda or have a beer and hang out at my place for two hours. And I realized 
I've come to know guys that have one car that are worth more than every car and motorcycle and my multi-million dollar building right. that's there in one car. But but even if it's Steve McQueen's Ferrari, how much can you talk about or look at one car? Yeah. Whereas to have 150 motorcycles and and and, and six race cars and six sports cars, there's something for everyone. You know, a guy might be a, 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 a total cruiser Harley fanatic. So, so you know, he'll be charmed by my Ducati Americano with, with, with conchos on it and, and, and fringes like a, like a Schwinn Stingray bicycle, you know, <laughs> exactly. and, and glitter in the hand grips and stuff where they were trying to figure out how to appeal to the American cowboy market that was just into Harleys and Indians in, right. in the early 1960s and things and late 50s. So... So, so much there. Um, I don't have a huge amount of memorabilia, but enough bodies and frames flying from cables and things from race bikes too, that it counts as sort of another 20 famous race bikes, even if they're only represented Kevin Schwantz's lucky strike fairing and sure. things like that hanging in the air. So, so it gives you such a, uh, such a tableau that when you look in any direction, you're looking at like five layers of a cake you know, up to right. the mezzanine, hanging from the ceiling, and it becomes dizzying in a good way, yeah. you know, that you could come there um, five times for two hours with me not changing anything and say, did you have this bike last time I was here? <laughs> was this bike parked in this spot? Was and, and nothing has moved. Right. But there's just so much to absorb at any given moment that, that it's impossible to, to absorb everything and not overlook. I just shipped out uh, a month and a half ago, 35 bikes to Iconic uh, in Los Angeles. Oh, sure. Yeah. I've been to that shop. Yeah, it's a great yeah, place. Great place. A must, a must stop for anybody who's into motorcycles, especially sport bikes, and is, is in Los Angeles. They are, uh, they are just the greatest, the greatest guys. And uh, I really like them. And so they sold 35 bikes for me. They had sold for some friends of mine as well that were either reducing or, or, or refreshing their collections. And so I went from 150 motorcycles on display to 115. And after we reshuffled the deck and rearranged, I, I walk in there and I can't even tell that there's more than three bikes missing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, and for me, it was important because, you know, when, when I started the collection, which was for this building, when I moved from the Hamptons to, to this farm, I had eight motorcycles at that moment. Never sold a bike. Uh, so, so I had my DR350, my Suzuki Bandit 400, which was bike number two, the 750 Monster, the 900 SS, um, and a couple Bimotas, DB2, DB4. And, um, and, I started buying mostly on eBay um, in preparation while, while I started construction. So 2006, I started construction on the Moto building. It took two and a quarter years to build. And so during that time, as it's coming up out of the ground, steel, because there's, there's no columns. So it's this big truss construction so that it's open. And, um, and, and so as it's, 
sorry about that. So as it's, uh, as it's being built, the moto building, um, I said, I got to buy bikes because this thing's going to be finished soon. And it's going to be 15,000 square feet of nothing. Of, of, <laughs> put of something polished in there. concrete. It's going to look like a ballroom for a ballroom dance studio or something or a catering hall. So, so, so what's been the focus of, of how you acquired bikes? I mean, you're clearly a performance oriented guy. You know, you've done some racing uh, in cars. You've done track days. Like, has that really been the focus of your collection or do you have some antique yeah, stuff? Or? You know, I, I fell in love with, with, with everything about Bimota. You know, I love the fact that they were, that, that, that they were Italian, you know, even how they got into the business from, from the HVAC business yeah. and, and being a Ducati guy, if you're really into it, you have to be a Massimo Tamburini fan. And of sure. course he's the ta in Bimota. So, so the, the, everything about it, the bikes are so beautiful that, um, and the fact that, that they would, you know, until they fell on their face, trying to make a 500 CC two stroke with the V due that, uh, that didn't work that, um, but I, but I have one and, and have ridden it. I have one of the evolution models where they, where they fix the carbs and things like that. And it's cool. It sounds like a snowmobile and, and uh, fun, lightweight bike. But point being, um, I, I bought what appealed to me. So the natural things was to start by filling in more and more Ducatis. I think I also had like a 750 F1 uh, already in the Hamptons. And so, so that encouraged me to say like, well, I already did up my 900 SS um, with what I, I customized it with white frame and wheels and stuff to make it look like the original super light. So let me get a real super light from 92 okay. yeah. and, and I'll, and I'll park them next to each other and so forth and so on. And, um, and I always loved the car bikes. So let me get an Orioli lucky strike Kajiva bike. And, oh, and I'm cool. going to park that next to my giant KTM 950 that I actually have rode. I like that bike so much that, that, uh, that I bought it twice. I had one in Spain and one in the U S just like the Benelli tornado, one in Spain and one in the U S and the, and the super Duke. I had one oh. in the U S one there, all three of the bikes that I had there, I had at the same time in the U S eventually I, I sold the place in, uh, in Spain. And so, um, so I was buying what appealed to me and then it was all through eBay. The other interesting thing that I have to say about eBay is when we talk about all these other ways that we get to explore and enjoy our, you know, our shared passion for, 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 for everything two wheels. So much of it now is, is on social media, of course. And at the time, there was no social media yet. It's 2008. Facebook was just starting for college kids only. Yeah. So I was in an interesting position even though I was running half the bank, my father was only paying me a salary as if I was running one twentieth of the bank because he, um, he was trying to pressure me on my personal side not to uh, marry my girlfriend and have her convert to Judaism, but to find myself a, a, a regulation Jewish girl, like he said, like, like, a regulation, <laughs> like a regulation dog, as he would put it, like, you know, four legs, a tail. He's like, so like four, four grandparents, you know, yeah. not this conversion stuff. As he would say to me, I'm, I'm not a rabbi. I know conversions accepted on all religious levels, 
but I'm not a rabbi. I'm a Holocaust survivor. All I really care about is, is whether her grandparents were Jewish or not, uh, particularly coming from Europe. So point is, he kept my salary unnaturally low to keep, to keep pressure on me to reconsider. And my, my fiance's mother uh, was detected with late stage breast cancer, had to stop working, and we had to support her. And uh, that's what made my, my former wife now, uh, mother of my two children, made a lifetime artist into someone who had to commercialize her art and, and sell handbags and jewelry to make money to support the mother. And for me, I had become friends on a trip overseas to see her family um, with the guys who own by Moto, uh, confusing like by Mota, but with an yeah. O at the end, who are the Brussels and, 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 and uh, Belgium dealers of Dianese uh, and, and, and distribute in the Benelux countries. And so I became friends with them and they said to me, maybe you could help us with a problem. I said, tell me. They said, um, we start selling stuff now online, but the tax authorities are so strict with the XVAT stuff. We have a lot of Americans that want to buy because in Europe, our pricing includes the 17% VAT tax. Right. So with a favorable dollar euro exchange, we can sell you know, Dianese at the time, their distribution was terrible. Um, you, you would order something and check like Ducati parts and check for six months whether it came in. And, and, uh, and so they'd say, can you, um, can you do us this favor? I said, what, what is it? They said, you know, Americans don't understand European sizing. So they don't understand that a 50 is a 40 to begin with. You know yourself that the cut of a Dianese touring jacket versus a sport jacket versus a race suit is completely different in terms of how close to the body it fits. Sure. So, so much of the stuff that's ordered, particularly by the Americans who are so hungry for it at these prices, um, end up not fitting. But if they ship it back to us, we have to pay a 17% re-import duty as if the goods were made in the US. There was no provision, and I think there still isn't, maybe they've changed a little, of the tax authorities to understand that it was just a retail internet sale and it's just being returned. Sure. If it's sold XVAT, it has to stay out of Europe and that's the end. So what would end up happening is they would sell a jacket and it would be the wrong size. The guy would say, I want to return it. They would say, okay, instead of trying to send it back to us in Brussels, send it to our agent, Alan Wilzig in New York. And when he gets it, as long as he says the tags are not removed and that it's not damaged, we'll send you the 52 instead of the 50 that you're returning. I would then go and sell it on eBay. And they would give me their cost. I was doing them such a favor sure. that I was paying like the factory retailer distributor cost. And when you take that plus the XVAT, plus a favorable dollar euro exchange, I could sell a jacket for $450 that, that sold for 550 or 600, and I could make 200 bucks doing it. So I was making, and, and then the same kid would say to me, um, can you get me gloves? Can you get me boots? Can you get me this? <laughs> right. And, and, and I'd end up getting that and making a little commission on that 
So I'd make about $1,800 or $2,000. I'd stay up till three, four in the morning. I've always been a night owl anyway. So I'd come back from the bank, work a full day, and then work eBay until two o'clock in the morning. And, and, uh, and between my wife, uh, former wife and I together, we made 3,000 bucks a month, which was enough to support her mom. And, um, and, and I did that for two, three years. The beauty of it, besides the satisfaction of, of helping a loved one's loved one, um, was, like I said, there was no social media at the time. So all of a sudden, I'm selling the coolest motorcycle gear coast yeah. to coast through eBay. And, and through <laughs> the eBay chat, that became my Facebook. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the guy would say, oh, well, I'm looking for a red thing to match my bike, a red right. jacket. And I'd say, well, is it Honda red or is it Ducati red or what? What kind of red bike are we talking about? Right, right. And that's all you have to do is ask somebody, what kind of bike are we talking about? And, and, and you're online chatting, you know, for an hour. Yeah, because you know so, about bikes. So, yeah, you know, you get engaged in a, a conversation with a fellow enthusiast. So, so it would be so fun that eventually, like, I started doing just crazy stuff where, where a guy bought a whole bunch of stuff for me. And I could tell that, that he was buying in a way that, that showed me clearly he was, you know, a working class guy. And, and didn't have extra money to throw around, but whatever money he could afford to put into his enthusiasm, he would. So, so just for fun, I was like, you know, it's the first year of uh, MotoGP at Coda. I bought four tickets instead of two tickets. You, you, uh, you're already in Texas. So, so just come from, from Dallas and meet me there. and You'll be my guest. I'll give you and your wife tickets and, and nice. we'll go to the race together. And so, so many just great moments that came from that and meeting so many people that you just can't believe it. And, and so then when social media came and I started racing and, 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 and got an early jump on that and had a bigger social media presence than like Penske's race team at the time, they yeah. didn't have shit, you yeah. know? And I was all about it. Cause for me, it was just a transition from like, oh, I get to do everything I'm doing on eBay, but I no longer have to sell that stuff. Right, we right. can just have fun and talk and be friends. <laughs> and, and uh and, and it and it just sort of escalated from there into a couple hundred thousand between all the different platforms together, which uh which which just adds to the fun and and and, and uh funny stories. You know, there's a woman that's pretty much known, certainly known to you, Vicky Smith, who does all the Ducati events and Ducati Island at Laguna Seca and stuff. Sure. And uh and and I'm asking her about something. She goes, Oh, you should ask uh you should ask Kamin Ko about that. And, and I'm like, come again? I think she's talking about a company name, you yeah. know, like Apex Co. And, yeah. and I go, what, what's a Kamin Ko? She goes, no, not what, who? She goes, you don't know who Kamin Ko is? So also he's got a huge social media presence, super into it. And I go, no, no, who is he? And, and she goes, he's your Chinese West Coast doppelganger. <laughs> I had to look up, even with a really good vocabulary, I had to look up what doppelganger meant. Uh, which of course is like your twin, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and such a funny thing to, you know, she's a funny lady to begin with great sense of humor. Um, and I got some great bikes, you know, her, her boyfriend, longtime uh, boyfriend, Rich Lambrex is a great restorer of seventies Ducatis. So, so my uh, 750 sport and my old seventies, 900 SS were, were both restorations done by him. Um, you know, it's a nice closed community or open community, but, 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 you know, everybody. So, so as I say, it's such a funny thing 
that, that people assume now today. How could you not know every fellow enthusiast right. yeah. from, from coast to coast? And sure enough, he's become one of my best friends and, and has been five times to my track. And, and, and whenever I do my West Coast track days, it's always with him and his gang. Uh, we went all together with him and Keanu Reeves in a crazy group to, to, uh, to Califat, Spain, um, with, with uh, Marcus Kramer from Kramer Motorcycles that I've fallen madly in love with. Uh, the guy is great. The bikes are sick. Uh, and it sort of answers the question, if, if you could only have one to ride uh, yeah. of, of those 115 or formerly 150 bikes, without a question, it would be the bike that KTM likes so much that they bought a hundred of to, right. to resell. And that is the, the GP2, which is a purpose-built race bike um, that has the KTM 890R uh, Duke motor in it. And, uh, and, and that's a 300 pound, uh, 140 horsepower, just animal that yeah. just, you know, you talk about a, a, a bike being a scalpel and use all those cliche terms or, or being able to pick up dimes on apexes, right. that is the bike to pick up right. dimes that, that you could come in and, and just say, you know, as you're approaching the apex, you talk about like making an adjustment of, 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 uh, of one foot tighter or, or, or wider on a, on a, on a corner. That is the, the bike to do it. It is, it is insane. So, so I've got a 690, the single seater thumper version that he came out with first. And I was lucky okay. enough to, to ride the test mule uh, when he shoehorned the 890 twin, the parallel twin motor into a modified frame um, at Califat. And then uh, I promptly ordered one of his first 10 and he was so nice. Uh, and, I, and I was such an early supporter and adopter of his young company. For those that don't know, he was a former KTM engineer that uh, left the company, but always stayed very close and purchased uh, single cylinder motors and made 300 pound race bikes that were like 90 horsepower, but 299 pounds wet, full of gas and fluids and, and ready to race in that KTM slogan way, but, but ready to go road racing. And KTM didn't offer a similar product. So he wasn't competing with them and they were happy to see uh, what, he was, what he was doing. As many know, one of my other favorite bikes is my one of 25 Red Bull uh, RC8 <clears throat> Uh, Red Bull replica, and um, and so that bike, as as you know, they never made a successor to it. Right. And famously, the 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 CEO Pure of of uh, KTM said, "We don't believe in 200 horsepower street bikes. We're not going to make a successor to that. You know, our Super Dukes and things like that. These more versatile performance bikes that that aren't just to get somebody killed or lose their their, their, their driver's license." Um, is, is enough for us. Uh, the track day market isn't big enough and, 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 and the, the horsepower wars <clears throat> are, are just not for us to want to, with a social conscience and business conscience, want to sure. participate in. So, so, uh, so Marcus kind of picked up the slack with his little Kramer company. And to be honest, as great as the product is, hitting COVID and, and, and things, I just thought, I hope his company makes it. Yeah. You know, yeah. how many of these bikes can he possibly make and sell in his little shop in, 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 uh, in Germany, just over the Austrian border? And, uh, and so it was thrilling for me to see two things. One, he, he sent me uh, 890R number one, 
that he kept number two, zero, 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 two off the production line for himself and sold me zero, 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 one. So every time the race dash lights up, it says Alan Wilsig, Wilsig Racing Manor, serial number zero, 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 one, which is a rush uh, for a bike that you ride all the time. And, um, and as I say, nothing was a greater validation that it's not just me that thinks that this bike just kicks ass but but ktm ordering a hundred just to 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 paint them orange change yeah. the bodywork in an almost imperceptible way and and uh and put two aero winglets on the front of it to give that moto gp look uh and whatever performance they offer and and um and so that was just a, a fantastic thing to, to 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 see you know both for 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 a friend now of the last four years and also just kind of like validation, as I say, that it's not just as obscure thing that I thought was cool. Right. It's undeniably cool. Right. A race right. bike out of the box. So that so that'd be one of the ones that like, I was going to ask, you know, if you were going to go, if you got a nice warm day and it's, it's, you know, I know we're coming out of winter is that if you were going to pick a bike to, to go put a couple of laps on your track, uh, it would be, it'd be the Kramer would be one of your one on the, on the short list. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is it, it, I, I would say, for the first week, I would be on the 690. Ah, okay. Uh, and, and, and after the rust, uh, the winter rust was off, <laughs> right. uh, uh, I would switch to the 890. But th- th- that goes back to what I was saying is that one of the, one of the real pleasant surprises of having uh, every kind of car and bike and, and rider and driver come see me at the track and come experience it um, is that modern supercars have so many driver aids between right. I mean, traction control and torque vectoring and all this stuff that it's incredible how much fun it is to that, that you know the, the the car record of of uh of 50.1 seconds very similar to like lime rock nearby but they're a, mil- a mile and a half but less uh less aggressive curves more of a bull rig as they call it but but i hold that lap record in the in a, a 1700 pound 300 horsepower lotus 211 which is like an elise with no roof um okay. and a 1700 pound car with a little toyota supercharged motor so so i do that exact same lap time in my mclaren 650s um which is twice the weight twice the horsepower but has nine supercomputers from McLaren keeping it on the road. So, so it's amazing to me because in my wildest dreams, I didn't think that you'd be able to take a modern 500 horsepower supercar and be totally on it and have a great time lapping that track. And, and you can, but only by virtue of the, of sure. the electronics. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true with a lot of the electronics on motorcycles. I mean, you know, it's not going to make you a better rider, but it can make you a safer rider. It can get you out of some dodgy situations. Yeah, one um, of the cornering ABS or traction control. I mean, one it, of the first it's, crashes, one of the first crashes on my track, a friend comes over, great guy, not going to mention his name, uh, with a with a new Panigale. They had just come out, and and he is much more of an enthusiast than he is a great accomplished rider, particularly on the track. Um, and, and he is going around a downhill left-hand turn number three. And, and, uh, and we can hear the traction control coming on. And, 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 and we just see that he's apexing way too early 
and the traction control. And he's doing like this ring around the rosy thing instead of staying out wide and apexing properly. And it's like, how many laps is he going to be able to do before he vectors directly into the grass, which sure enough, he did on the next lap. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and so the funny thing to finish the Audi story, I know we're, we're running close on time or over. And that is um, the engineer who's there testing the tires for the launch of the TTRS. And, and Peter says to him, my, my manager, can I take you out and show you the line? And the same thing, the hubris, the guy is like one of these white lab coat, like from a commercial for Audi, you know? Yeah. And he goes, please, he goes, I'm 11 years an engineer. And, and tester for Audi. I go two times a year to the Nordschleife, to the Nuremberg ring, uh, uh, testing cars. He goes, I think I'll be fine on, on, your, on your boss's backyard track. <laughs> so thanks to Keith Code, we've got a, a blind crest that you've got to be, uh, it's like the, similar to the corkscrew. You got to be lined up to a tree or something of a visual cue and be all the way over to the right before you climb the face of this hump. Because if you go up it in the middle, particularly in a car, yeah. and then realize, holy shit, there's a, a significant downhill right over this crest, it's too late. So, so this Audi guy, uh, he says to Peter, listen, I don't mean to be an arrogant jerk. Well, he's in the middle of being an arrogant jerk. He goes, um, but this is the photo car. It's, it's wrapped in the launch vinyl for the photographers and stuff. He goes, I can't have one pebble hit this before the photographers do. So I really don't feel comfortable with anybody else driving it. So Peter says, okay. And Peter gets in the right seat. The guy goes over that crest. So we're talking about, he's starting at the start finish line from a dead stop, goes turn one, which is a crazy double apex really challenging deceptive turn in its own right i guess he's happy enough that he made it through turn one that he just takes this middle of the road up the face of turn two which is this crest and realizes too late while he's got air under his back tires no braking ability weight transfer completely wrong and hooks it to the right of course spins it and goes backwards into my gravel trap Peter said you heard 10,000 pieces of pea stone ricocheting <laughs> off the car that he couldn't have one pebble hit. Okay? Right, right. And buries the thing down to the balls in, in the gravel trap and needs to be towed out with a tractor. Okay. Um, and, and so that showed me really that everything we wanted to do with this track, we, we accomplished. And that is, and, and again, thanks to Keith Code, there was one corner that I could not figure out what to do. And I literally would have had to move a mountain to like flatten this thing out. And Keith comes here and goes, oh, he goes, you should put a banking here. And I'm like, excuse me? I'm like, the, the only kind of motorsports that I don't follow yeah. is drag racing and NASCAR ovals. And you want me to put a banking? And I'm like, this, this isn't Talladega. Like, I, I can't put a banking. It's the Daytona 200. What else resonates to a motorcyclist right. about a banking, a, a one race a year where everybody's tires get destroyed? You know, I said, I, I don't get it. And he goes, no, man. He goes, think of it. You're not doing racing here. He goes, he goes, when we did the streets of Willow, he goes, we had hard scrabble desert. He goes, it was like making a track on a giant piece of styrofoam. 
whatever you cut just stays in place and you pave it and, and it's no fuss, no muss, no mud, no clay like you're dealing with here. He goes, but let me tell you, everybody that goes around our banking, I don't know what turn it, technically it is at, at Willow. Um, he goes, I'm telling you, he goes, if you put this banking in, he goes, especially it's going to be asymmetrical. It's going to be uphill one way, downhill the other. Yeah. He goes, you put this in, whether it's a 14-year-old kid in a Yamaha Rhino, which was the only side-by-side -side at the time, or, or a 14-year road racer, they're going to come away and they're going to be amazed at this banking because it's the only time you don't have to worry about centrifugal force winning. Right. And you can right. just hammer it through and just do your weight balance and, and not to bury the nose coming in. And, and, uh, and he goes, I'm telling you, it, it's going to be the thing everybody remembers. And sure enough, before it was even paved, my daughter at the time was four years old, up for everything with me. She would just say, Daddy, take me on the crazy turn. Because <laughs> to her, to be, to be 19 degrees of super elevation for, for a little kid was crazy. And, and sure enough, that is the, the most fun when I have guys who are faster riders than me. That's the, the great thing, is that because of my professional car racing and the limits of cars, and my, you know, um, there's never been anybody faster than me on four wheels around my track. Pro racers have come and within four sessions are as fast as me, right? but not faster. Right. On motorcycles, I've had my ass kicked 10,000 times. I have friends that come over that are faster than me. Pete's faster than me around the place. Everybody's faster than me because I don't want to crash. Right. You know, right. As, I, as I tell my friends, you know, even the ones that are super enthusiasts, if they crash, even if it's a little collarbone or a wrist, they miss two, three track day weekends. Yeah. If, if I break a bone during the season, I miss 60 track days. Yeah. Yeah. That's, nobody that's, wants to get injured and have the recovery. It's like, it, you know, it's, it can happen, but you don't want to make a habit out of it. Yeah, I did. I, you know, 25 years ago, I did two ACLs from dirt bike accidents and things yeah. like that and reconstructed knees. Yeah. In my fifties, man, I'm not up for that at all. Yeah. You know, all those jokes about no longer bouncing when you hit the ground and all that stuff, yeah. you know, is unfortunately undeniably true. Um, and, and, uh, and so that said, the only time I get vindication on a bike is heading into the banking. I'll, I'll be with faster riders and hardly be able to keep them in sight or keep up with them. But I know as soon as we get to the banking, they're going to chop the throttle as yeah. they as they approach because they're seeing a wall of asphalt and don't know what they have to do and and uh and i'm just coming in and i'm gonna hammer it because like i say i know that centrifugal force is not gonna yeah. win that's gonna be my moment to shine and, <laughs> and, the, and the one lap until they figure it out and you know what's funny some of them they they like they don't figure it out you know that 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 they still uh it, it takes a long time for for a motorcyclist that's so used to being knee down and so into being on that 45 degree angle or so. Yeah. But not have the road be at that angle. Right. Right. Yeah. You know? And yeah, uh, I, I was ahead. on a Conti drone in Germany once that had the high banked walls and it's a, uh, it's a weird thing to get you. I mean, that's extreme banking of course, but that was a really weird thing to try to get used to. Uh, but yeah, you, you you're feel, right. You you're feel just like a completely, carnival. Yeah. You feel like a carnival show, like the wall of death riding yeah, around. In a exactly. Crowd. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, Alan, man, I've eaten up a lot of your time. You've been very generous. Um, is there anything you want to say to sort of wrap things up? 
you've talked a lot well, about your, your track and your background. I mean, you know, one thing I, I know that you do a lot of charity work, uh, you know, through your track and other things, you're, you're a very generous philanthropist. So, uh, um, yeah, I know we didn't get to talk about much of that stuff, but are any yeah, organizations I mean, you want to give a shout out to? I think that, that the reason I, I, uh, I don't uh, talk about it as much is because I'm, I'm still sore. Uh, you know, it can't be too sore. I have to keep things in perspective when, when, uh, when so many people have been sick and, and, and worse. But uh, for the last two years, we've had to suspend our, our, our annual charity event, our big thing because of COVID. Sure. Uh, we're hoping to come roaring back this June and, and expect to. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, there's, um, you know, we, we've changed, we've, we've changed charities over the years. We, we, we try and, uh, mix it up, but there's a, there's a group called racers for cause that, uh, that takes, uh, veterans and, uh, gets them seat time in race cars. I actually gave them a car donated, uh, for them to use a sports racer. And, uh, and they get guys uh, crewing and things. And, and it's, it's helped a, a lot of vets, um, some with, with injuries and PTSD and things like that, um, really get to expand their, their, uh, their horizons and, and do something new and, uh, and exciting. And, and the other is, uh, is called High and Mighty, which is a, my, my son that I mentioned earlier has autism. And so uh, local to me uh, in Columbia County is a place called High and Mighty Riding. Uh, uh, and that is a therapeutic horseback riding for, for kids and young adults with disabilities, developmental disabilities, where they do equine therapy. Um, and it's amazing how successful it is, how the bond, I'm not a horse guy. Everybody always asks me the same thing when they hear about a farm. They're like, do you have cows? No, they just smell. <laughs> Uh, and, and I've got a, a 700 acre dairy farm as my beloved next door neighbor. And he's got 200 cows. You want to go see a cow, we'll go over there. Right. And, and, uh, and they always ask if I have horses. And, and I always tell them the same thing. Like, you know, it's enough not to, not to break myself on a motorcycle that I'm in control. I, I really don't want to be on a horse that, that, uh, that has a, a hornet stinging in the ass and goes crazy, you know? <laughs> right. a, a, a stuck throttle is a really rare thing, particularly when Pete's taking care of the bikes. But, uh, but with a horse with its own personality and attitude, it's one big no thanks. And, uh, and so, as I say, that, notwithstanding that, it's amazing the, the bond uh, that takes place, uh, particularly with kids that are nonverbal and things, right. of, of, of interacting with a horse like that and, and is a fantastic organization. So, so thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, we can include links in the, in the show notes for the episode. So um, again, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you know, we haven't met personally. We were, uh, you know, introduced through our mutual friend, John Fontaine, but I really appreciate your time telling us some Where stories. Where are you now anyway? Uh, I'm in Ventura, California. It's interesting. I actually have met Camming. He's in my backyard. He lives here in Ventura County. Um, so yeah, we're, you're in, uh, you in New York right now? I am in uh, in Miami. I rented a house for two months, so so for February and March. Um, Get away from school, huh? <laughs> but yeah, and and uh, and so my question to you is: uh, Are you going to be coming out east anytime this year? Uh, 
I don't have specific plans to come out that way. It sort of depends on the um, travel schedules, you know, uh, motorcycle press launches and stuff. But uh, hey, at some point, I'd love to come check out your collection, see your place. So yeah, uh, I, I would invite you, even if you're, you're you're with some other people, whatever, whether it be uh, family, friends, or or professionally, I, I would love to invite you to to stay to stay over. It's the most fun for me. It makes everything fresh and new all over again. Awesome. And and I'd love to have you be my guest. So, so when something does come up, just add two extra days okay. and, and, and do a deviation and, and, and come stay and play. I, I appreciate the invitation, Alan. And again, I appreciate your time. Um, for Rider Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit ridermagazine.com where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Rider Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.